Open up to Acts chapter 2. The last few weeks we saw Jesus uh, ascend uh, and we saw the Holy Spirit arrive. Uh, And then last week we're seeing at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in and among the the believers that uh, Christians began to speak in foreign languages and they were speaking about the mighty works of God in in other language, in Italian and whatever else they were speaking at the time. Uh, And those who, who listened... Uh, ask that question, what does this mean? And, and Peter stands up. And I love Peter. Absolutely love Peter. Because remember, Peter messed up huge. Peter denied even knowing Christ. Not just that he was his Savior, but denied even knowing Jesus Christ uh, just before his crucifixion. And, and, and yet afterwards, he repented, and Jesus restores him completely. And, and this Peter that we see here is totally different. He has this confidence that Christ is exactly who he said he was, uh, that he is his Savior. And we just see this. And so uh, at this moment, we see him uh, stand up and, and he answers and he raises his voice and he tells them, you know, the Holy Spirit has come. That's what all this means. Just like Joel said it would happen. The Holy Spirit has indeed come. And he tells them that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one that you've been looking forward to. And he shows them, listen, you killed the Messiah. And then he tells them that Jesus has been resurrected and that he's alive and that he's exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, and, and the Spirit works in those who are listening and we're told that they were cut to the heart. Um, and now they're asking the, a different question. Now they're asking, what shall we do? And, and Peter's simple, simple answer to that is repent and be baptized. Um, and last week we looked at what repentance is, and, and, and I'm waiting until this week to look at baptism uh, because there's a covenantal aspect to it, and, and I really think it helps explain why in the rest of our text here there is this close-knit community, this, this unity that follows in the church afterwards. And, and we're going to see that their, <clears throat> you know, this early church, their devotion to the means of grace and, and uh, really just how they have all things in common, what a glorious thing this is, but uh, that's what we're looking for as a, as a local community, as a local church as well. Uh, not some idealist perfection, we're going to do everything absolutely right and love each other perfectly, uh, but really that we'd have a great love for God and a great love for each other that is seen in the way that we actually live out our lives. Um, and so let's, let's read the first section. Uh, we're going to start verse 37, I'll read through 41, and then later we'll read a few more verses and, and move on from there. Uh, So Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this week is that we, like these people at Pentecost, would also be cut to the heart. Uh, That we would repent and be baptized if we have not repented and have not been baptized. Uh, God, may we believe what your word here says in regards to how 
Uh, We are to function as a local church and as a covenant community, having all things in common, Uh, that we might be patient and gracious even as we seek to relate to each other in this sense of commonality. Uh, Lord, give us hope today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the second way uh, that we are to respond to the good news of the gospel, Peter says, is to be baptized, right? Repent and be baptized, which raises a few questions. First of all, what does baptism mean? Why do this? What is, it, what is even the purpose of it? And the second question, who should receive baptism? Uh, we'll start with that second question, who should receive uh, the mark or the sign of baptism? And uh, I was reading actually this, this week a, a novel called Gilead. Any of y'all ever read this? Uh, Mary Lynn Robinson wrote it. Um, and in the story, the narrator tells the story about when he was a young boy. Uh, his dad was a pastor, and uh, he grows up to be a pastor also. But he says that when he was a young boy, he actually baptized a litter of kittens in his town. And as he tells the story, he says, you know, of course, he was careful to to use the Trinitarian formula. And so as he poured water over the heads of these kittens, he he, uh, did so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, the cats didn't love it, but they were okay with it. Uh, And there with him at the time was a young young Baptist boy who absolutely objected to what he was doing. Uh, He believed that these cats should be immersed completely. Uh, and that was the problem with what they were doing. And, and the narrator points out that these kittens really should be grateful that he was a Presbyterian since they were not immersed this way. <clears throat> Later, the boy goes and asks his father, um, what would happen if you baptized the cat? Uh, he didn't tell his dad he baptized the cat, just what would happen if he did? And his dad responded to him saying, the sacraments must always be treated with regard and with the greatest respect. And the boy understood that his day of baptizing cats were over. Um, at that point. Uh, And so I like this story. I like it because it reminds me that uh, as many differences as we have on the views of baptism within the church and across denominations, uh, me and my Baptist friends can agree we ought not to baptize kittens, ever. Uh, And so there is that that unity there, that sense of understanding uh, that. Uh, But it does raise the question, who should be baptized? Uh, Verse 38, look at this. Follow along as I read it again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's real clear. It's real clear from this that those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ should be baptized. Okay, real simple, right? Uh, And that's because they are beginning uh, their journey in this covenant of grace, or as a member in this covenant of grace. You remember that the book of Acts is an absolute missionary situation. Uh, everyone there. You see, every single person that they're talking to is a first-generation believer. Uh, Let me explain that. Some of them might be 40th or 75th or 100th generation of of a Jewish family, but every single person they're speaking to was absolutely a first-generation Christian. And so that's the situation that we're we're reading this into. And so uh, if you're here today and you profess faith in Christ and you have not been baptized, you absolutely should be. Uh, and I say that, talk to me. Uh, let's arrange that. Let's have a baptism because that <clears throat> is what we see here. It's not because that's some requirement for salvation. It's not. Uh, but it is a sign of your being a, a member of the covenant community. Uh, and so that is something you ought to do. And so the second question we see here, uh, who else should be baptized? I mean, that's ought to be a question we ask. And if you look at back at verse 39, it says, For the promise is to you, 
and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. See, when you and I read that, uh, we read it in the context of our own culture, and we miss a lot because of that. Uh, something very significant is missed. There is actual covenantal language that is being used there. It's, it's something like this. In our culture today, if I say, um, may the force be with you, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Um, that's a phrase that makes sense to you. It's something that is spoken into our culture <clears throat> that has been made so often that none of you are asking, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, even if you've never watched Star Wars, you know that's a reference from Star Wars. That's Star Wars kind of language. Uh, so you recognize that it's from Star Wars. That's how these Jewish people would have read this or would have heard this. When he uses that phrase in verse 39, for, this, for the promise is to you and for your children, they would have understood that, that this was reinforcing God's covenant with his people and that it included children as well as adults. Uh, Genesis 17, there God made a covenant with Abraham uh, and he's saying that he is going to be their God. Part of that is that God's promise is also to Abraham's children. We see that in Genesis 17, 9 through 10, uh, <clears throat> where he gives the sign of the covenant. Or, or he tells us this will be the sign of the covenant. It reads, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Uh, circumcision then signified this entrance into the covenant. Uh, it didn't guarantee anyone's salvation. It wasn't the thing that caused salvation, uh, but it showed that they were entering into this covenant. Uh, Michael, Bo Michael Horton, in the book Ordinary, which actually we just read this week, and this is from the chapter that the men's and women's group are studying, uh, men this week will do, and the women just looked at. He says this. He says, Baptism is not an end in itself. Rather, it is only the beginning of a life of discipleship in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament covenant sign was circumcision. It was administered to men and infant boys. It didn't guarantee they would not reject God in life, but it showed that they were part of the community of God. It gave them the benefits of the community, prayer, hearing the word, shepherding care. It meant they were part of the discipleship process and they were baptized from the beginning of that process like the eunuch who Peter baptizes at the start of his discipleship in Acts 8, or the 3,000 in Acts 2.41 who are baptized at the start of their discipleship. Okay, so keep in mind, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has instituted two sacraments. All the church recognizes these sacraments. Um, Catholicism will say seven, but all Protestant churches acknowledge two sacraments. Uh, the first is baptism, which begins our journey, and it signifies our place in the covenant community. Uh, the second is the Lord's Supper, uh, which renews our journey. Uh, it's a renewal of that covenant. Uh, and what this all means is that, that children are part of the covenant community. See, when parents here come and have their child baptized, uh, we are, <clears throat> you know, they're into the covenant. There is this, this aspect of um, that they're going, to be, they're going to raise them. There's this commitment that they're going to raise them with an expectation that they will profess faith in Christ. Uh, that's how God typically works, through the, through the family, through the church, through the covenant. Uh, and, and so they're looking forward to this. That's part of the blessing of being in the covenant community. See, we, we look for the day, <clears throat> we look at our children, we look for the day when they themselves will make a profession of faith. Um, and their own profession of faith before the elders. And, and then they begin receiving the Lord's Supper. Uh, then they become active members in the church body. 
time. But I do. I want you to understand this, that when we baptize a child, we're not saying they have faith. We're saying that we as parents vow and we as a church vow to raise these children in the covenant, uh, to teach them the truths of Scripture, to pray with them, uh, to pray for them. In short, we're making this commitment that we're going to disciple them in the faith. And so let me make this as absolute simple as I can in the Old Testament. The sign of the covenant was circumcision. In the New Testament, the sign of the covenant is baptism. Circumcision in the Old Testament was applied to adult males, and this marked their entrance into the covenant, into that community. Uh, circumcision in the Old Testament was also applied uh, to children, uh, male children, and that marked their beginning, their, their entrance into the covenant. In the same way, baptism is now applied to adult men and women, and it marks their entrance into the covenant, into the community. Uh, baptism is also applied to the children of those who are in the covenant, believers, uh, and it marks their entrance into this covenant community. Uh, so let me also add this, that what we are seeing in the New Testament is this covenant of God being expanded, right? We're seeing it opened up to the Gentiles. It's going outside of the Jewish community. Um, and so it would make absolutely no sense if suddenly children who were included in the covenant are suddenly now removed from the covenant. Uh, that would be less expansive, not more expansive. So um, I realize baptism is a controversial thing. Some of you are probably sitting here thinking, I have it completely wrong. Um, there is much more to be said. There is much more conversation to be had about this. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, covenantal baptism, I really do believe in it. And I can tell you I come from a background of someone who did not. Uh, having come to faith in a Baptist background, I understand the hang-ups you might have. I don't blame you for it, but uh, I would love to have more conversation about this if it is something you're thinking about. And so uh, let's grab coffee, and, and we can discuss that more at any point. And the, the back and forth, the questions is really helpful. So <clears throat> looking back at the text, though, because that's not the only thing we see in our text today, uh, let's not forget that Peter also says that this promise is for those who are far off. Uh, that means that we are to invite everyone into this covenant. That means our lives should absolutely be evangelistic. And, and that can be as simply as simply inviting someone to church, uh, inviting them to anything else the church is doing. Uh, maybe they come, maybe they don't. Uh, but let them know that they're welcome here. I think that goes a long way. You'd be surprised. Sometimes we sit and wait, you know, maybe they'll ask me if they can come to church. No, they probably won't. Um, invite people. Uh, it could mean asking them questions, you know, uh, about what they do believe and helping them to, to show them that there is a God who calls them to repentance, calls them to faith, calls them to baptism. Uh, in verse 40, then, we see Peter continues to exhort uh, people who are listening. Uh, exhort means to strongly encourage. He's tr strongly encouraging them, listen, you need to come and believe in Christ, to follow him, to believe in him, to rest in him. Uh, and many of those present do believe. They believe what Peter is sharing, him, sharing here, and, and God works in a huge way. You see that giant number there, right? 3,000 people come to believe that Jesus is the Lord, and they repent and they're baptized. That's amazing. Um, the number we see before, there were 120 people right before Pentecost, you know, like earlier this day. Uh, and now 3,000, that is insane. Um, and then it is, it's amazing. But I, but I think when we see this, I want to remind you that that is a work of the Holy Spirit, okay? 
Um, I, I mention that because it's easy to start to wonder, well, why isn't that happening today? You know, why, why haven't 3,000 people walked in this door this morning? Uh, why isn't that happening in that way? And it's a fine question, but uh, we've seen it often leads churches to, to try to replicate this, to try to find massive immediate growth, and, and, and in which turns really, really this question of, you know, how can we cause this? How can we make this happen? See, if we look closely at the text, we see what they're doing here. They're proclaiming the gospel, and God is sending his spirit. That's how it happens. Um, so the only way we really can make this happen is to proclaim the gospel, and God does the rest. Uh, the danger, though, is, is when we believe that we can cause this, then we start to figure out ways to try to replicate it. And the truth is, in our country, we have actually seen this, what happens when people believe that they can cause people to be cut to the heart, that they can actually create this. Uh, there was a church a few years ago, nowhere near here, uh, but they put together this video of how to create uh, immediate mass baptisms. And the video told them to, to play music so that people's emotions would be moved. And, and it's actually like a how-to, how to actually create this. And uh, it said, you know, you take 15 people and you plant them around, around the sanctuary and you want them to be the first to respond, to get up and to begin walking. And they're to walk in the most visible places so that other people see them and think, okay, this is no big deal. Everyone's doing this. I should go too. And, and as you get down to it, you know, they're, they're thinking, this is brilliant. Let us do this for the Lord. There is probably good motives in this. But at the bottom line, it's, it's marketing. It's a sales tactic uh, in the same way that you might sell a product. Here's the problem with that. Um, marketing works to get people to make a decision in a moment. And our American church culture has proven that we can use marketing to get people to make a decision. We absolutely can. We can be incredibly successful at getting people to make a decision. But we cannot cut people to the heart. We cannot create the work of redemption in the heart of a sinner because only the Holy Spirit can do that work. And that's not to say that God has left us without any tools, that we just sit back and do nothing. You know, as we go about the Great Commission, we, we desire, we're seeking to watch God redeem sinners. And, and he's given us his holy word, the holy scriptures which reveal the gospel. He's, he's given us prayer by which our requests can be made known to God, our requests uh, to see God save the souls of those we, we seek to, to share the gospel with. And he's given us the Lord's Supper where we see and we smell and we touch and we hear the gospel again each time that we participate. See, we see all these in verses 42 and 43. Um, I'm going to read those, follow along. Verse 42, and and they, that's the early church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. See, we read that they were devoted to four practices. Not just they sometimes participated in these practices, but were devoted. Uh, that phrase, they devoted, is, is what is called the imperfect tense. It's one of those uh, weird things about the Greek. It really, it, here's what it means. It means that something happened in the past, but it was done continually. Uh, it was an ongoing, continuous action. And that means that these four things were not just sometimes, it was all their life was about. Not all their life was about, but continuously a part of their life. Uh, and the first thing mentioned is the apostles' teaching. Uh, there was a hunger for learning. They wanted to learn from the Old Testament, and they wanted to learn what Jesus had taught, and they wanted to learn what, what Jesus had revealed through the apostles. It's this 
It's always really just a clear indication that the Holy Spirit is work, at work in a church when there is a hunger for the Word of God. And that means reading it. That means hearing it expounded. That means having it applied. It, it means more than just knowing it as an academic exercise. It means um, this desire to submit ourselves to God's Word. Not just the red letters. Um, I think that's an, an error that our church in this era makes sometimes. You know, the early church understood that submitting to the apostles' teaching was submitting to Christ. Uh, all of the Word of God, not just the red letters. Uh, today, we have no living apostles, but we still submit ourselves to God's Word. Uh, the second practice here mentioned is fellowship. This is a participation in each other's lives, a, a sharing of life together. It's a Greek term you've likely heard before, koinonia. We like to use it. Uh, often in Hebrews 13, 16, the same word koinonia there is translated share. Let me read that to you. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share, that's koinonia, what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so again, this, this fellowshipping is more than just you know, attending the same party together. We tend to have bottom line fellowship so much that it's just, hey, we're in the same building, that's fellowship. Uh, but really it's this, this sharing of life with each other as we're members of Christ's body together, uh, which is why we can have great friendship with, with those who don't have faith in Christ, but we can't have true fellowship in the sense that Scripture speaks of it. Um, I find it interesting, there's been, there's been research done many times asking some question along the lines of, uh, you know, how satisfied are you in your church? It's the question we all kind of would like to hear the answer to, but you're afraid to ask sometimes. Uh, how satisfied are you in your church? And the results have actually shown exactly what we've just seen in Acts 2.42, uh, at least thus far. It says that people are most satisfied when they feel that they are being faithfully taught the word of God, and when they feel they have true fellowships, that they belong to that church community. Uh, and I can tell you those are priorities for us as a church. Uh, we want to faithfully proclaim the word of God to you. We want to actively foster community. Uh, so often I, I, I hear this back. It's encouraging to me. It's nothing I've done. Uh, <clears throat> but that something that we excel at as a church is, is fellowship. And that absolutely can't be programmed. Um, that's you sharing your lives with each other. You know, saying, you know, you know what, let's, let's take a night off Netflix. Let's have someone over. Um, that's the kind of thing that it takes for, for fellowship to really flourish. Uh, and, and let me just say this. Continue to do that. Uh, I love it when I don't really know about it, but somehow I kind of hear it out of the side of something that so-and-so was over at so-and-so's house, and I'm like, I didn't even know they hung out. That's wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> improve that. Take that strong point. Let's improve that. If you see someone in this room and you think, I don't know who they are, get out of your comfort zone and change that. Go talk to them. Invite them over. Uh, you know, just be that awkward person and ask weird questions. That's better than saying nothing. Uh, third way they participate is the breaking of bread. Acts 27, 20, verse 7, mentioned this as well. It says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Uh, this was both a meal with a variety of foods involved, and that would have come to an end, culminated with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's not exactly how we do it today. Uh, this was a regular occurrence, though. It was of great importance to the church uh, when they gathered together. And like I said, we don't have the meal beforehand, but the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is still of absolutely great importance to us today. Uh, and then the last thing we see here is that they were devoted to prayer. We see this so often in the life of the New Testament church. 
I think the big reason why this is the case is that they know how deeply dependent upon God they are. Uh, We tend to be more self-reliant at this point in history. Uh, Their constant prayer, though, tells us that they uh, they weren't hesitant to say, you know, God, I don't know how to be a good husband. I don't know how to be a good wife. I don't know how to parent well. I don't know how to face my doubts. I don't know how to think about dating. I don't know how to handle stress from school or deployment or anything. And, and, and part of this is just, you know, that we too, we need to come to God and, and say just as much that, that, that the first century church here says, just to pour our hearts out to God, uh, not only for ourselves, but for those that, that God has placed in our lives. In verse 43, we see that the people of the church were full of awe. <clears throat> awe. It's not what you'd think, but it comes from the word phobia. You know this. You've heard this, right? Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Uh, phobia just means fear. And here's the deal. We don't learn to fear, to have awe of God by the common American practice of just imagining God however you want him to be and, and how you wish God to be. You don't end up with a fear and awe of God with that. We gain a proper respect, a proper awe of God by studying his word and seeing God as he really is, as he has revealed himself in his word to be. Now as these these people have entered into this, this covenant, and they've received the sign of the new covenant, and we see uh, a community form, right? This really close-knit community, especially when you consider we're talking about thousands of them. Uh, this is absolutely insane, all right? Look at verses 44 through 47. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, and as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they had all things in common. You get 3,000 people together, there are bound to be some differences. The point here, though, is that they all share in the essential. They all looked to Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin. Uh, And that leads them to share their possessions, to to help carry each other's burdens. You know, it it should be noted here, just because this verse has been used at times to promote it, uh, this is not communism. It's not socialism. Uh, Everyone who gives here gives voluntarily. They're not forced by the church. They're not forced by the state to do so. Um, In fact, they still own possessions. Right in the same little portion of text, we see that they were meeting in whose houses? their homes. They still belong to them. Uh, The situation, though, is that some of them were in serious poverty, and others of them had excess uh, of wealth, more than they needed. Uh, Those with more were sharing because they were moved by the very motivation that should motivate each of us today. Generosity, right? Uh, That is a, a love for God and a love for others that is shown as generosity. Uh, It was the way that Paul later later actually encourages the church in Galatia to practice their faith. Uh, Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Um, They shared what they had, and we ought to also. I think you look at this, and you've got to apply it to our culture. What does that look like for us today? You might have a skill that someone else could benefit from. Share it. 
last, last winter, Richard actually uh, showed me how to convert a sunroom into a bedroom, and I did not have the ability to do that. It would still be a sunroom to this day apart from that. Uh, but today I actually have an office that I can put a copier in instead of our bedroom. Uh, glorious, glorious thing. My wife appreciates that. Um, and that's because he was willing to share with me what was lacking. There was generosity on his part. Uh, when babies are born, when surgeries are had, there's a group of you who actually organize these meals and provide these, this food for people, not because having a baby earns you, you know, a meal. It's so parents can rest, uh, so they're not worried about where the food's going to come from for a while. Um, I'll give you another example. About a, well, I don't know, a month or two ago, um, <clears throat> Richard again, sorry, I should ask you before using you in examples. Uh, he bought this wood stove on Craigslist, and you know, he needed help carrying it, so I was like, no, you help me, but I don't want to help you, so I left him alone. No. Uh, <clears throat> and so we, we go to get this stove, and, and Chris Earnshaw comes, and we've realized real quick that this thing is, it's like a cast iron, iron skillet, but it's huge. Um, and the three of us can't lift it up. It's way too heavy. We lack the strength. Uh, but it turns out Chris is there, and Chris had strength and access, excess. Uh, rather, he had access to strength and excess. Uh, and so he shared, he gets on his phone, and he calls up a group of freshmen in his fraternity, and he tells them, hey, guys, um, I'll give you 50 eye points uh, if you come out and help me carry this. Five minutes later, a car shows up with these uh, five strong guys. They pick up the stove, and they carry it out like it's nothing. Richard, Chris, and I just sit back and watch this. Uh, it's beautiful. They take it out to his truck, um, and, and, and again, we just watch. And, and then and so uh, Chris tells them, thanks, guys. Put my name next to your eye points. You know, make sure you write my name next to it. And we're thinking, this is awesome. They get in the car, and they're pulling out of the driveway. And, and as they're leaving, Chris tells us, while he's still looking at them, they won't find out until November that eye points don't exist. It's not a real thing. It's, but he had, he had these guys uh, who were willing to do whatever he said for points that don't exist. And it was wonderful because he generously shared what he had. <laughs> so uh, you might be able to share financially. Uh, you might also have abilities that you can do. You might have knowledge. And I know some of you are thinking, don't tell people what my abilities and my knowledge are. I don't want to be, to be booked out. But that's, that's the way it goes. Sometimes just using that is a way to show your generosity with each other. Okay? Um, keep doing that. It's wonderful to see that in the community. So, uh, last few things we see here are that they attend the temple and they worship together. And they also met in their homes and they shared meals together. It says in verse 48, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. They lived a simple life, a simple faith. Um, their faith and practice was really the main, main aspect of their evangelism. You know, they didn't plan Passion Conference 37 AD or, or something like that. They didn't have a, a list of celebrities to kind of attract people so they could preach the gospel to them. They lived a simple life of faith. They loved each other. They were generous with what God had provided them with. They were glad to have food together, to share in that time together. Um, they worshipped God together. I mean, do you see that? Do you see what, what characterizes these early believers is this desire to live all of their lives for the sake of Jesus, no matter the cost. And that's, that's what I pray for me, and that's what I pray for you. That's what I, I pray for us. Um, that we would believe the gospel and live all of our lives for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. 
um, you know, may we resemble the early church in the way that we love each other and the way that we love the Lord. Really the other way around, in the way that we love the Lord and the way that we love each other. Uh, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the promise that you make to us in the gospel. A promise to be our God and to redeem us and to keep us from falling away. Thank you for the great sacrifices you've made to bring us into your family, and we ask that, that you make us to really understand that, and despite all the differences in this room, differences of personalities, differences of political views, even differences of baptism, our music interests, our hobbies. Lord, that despite all of our differences, we might have in common the most essential of all things, the forgiveness of our sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. God, make us generous with each other in the same way that you have been generous with us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.